evening, good evening. We are so excited that you are here tonight with us. And I'm excited to jump into tonight's message. I'm very excited for what the Lord has been doing here at The View the last few weeks. It's been pretty special to be a part of. And I want to say a word to you. Uh, if this is your first time, we are very, very glad you're with us on a Monday night. Thank you so much for choosing to be with us. And if I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Daniel Harris, and I serve on staff at Bellevue as the college pastor. And I've been here for almost six years. Not as college pastor, I began as an um, intern and uh, worked as a director for a while. And then uh, came on staff as a pastor a little over two years ago. Coming up on two and a half years ago, I've been pastoring The View and, and grateful to be here in the ministry. Grateful to be a part of your lives and your story. But I want to tell you, if this is your first time, I would love to meet you. But there's two things you can do. And please, if this is your first time, I really do ask that you do this. We don't want to miss anybody. If this is your first time, text guest to 901-833-7525. What we're going to do is you'll hear from one of us. We'll connect with you. We'll get you some information uh, on the ministry and stuff like that. Or you can stop back by the guest table. We'll get these lights up in a minute too for you. But you can stop by the guest table in the back, my back left, your back right corner, and we have a gift for you. And we would love to connect with you. And, man, we say it every week because it matters, and I hope you don't grow numb to it. But view members, aren't you grateful we have guests in the room? Amen? Amen. That's right. Thank you for choosing to spend your Monday night with us, especially on Thanksgiving week. You can be anywhere in the world right now, and you've chosen to come and worship with us. I want to tell you, we're really grateful you're here. I, as I said, I will be back by the table right after service. I would love to meet you, would love to get to know you, and would love to hear your story. Uh, I want to encourage you tonight as we head into the Cornhole Tournament, the reason why we're doing our Cornhole Tournament tonight, I'll be very honest and transparent with you. I, I enjoy Cornhole. I like it. I'm not great at it. I'm above average, though. Slightly. But the reason why we're doing a cornhole tournament is because, and we got a lot of food coming for y'all too. We got Chick-fil-A, we got donuts, amen? That's what I'm talking about. Hey, it's Thanksgiving week, we gotta feed you. We got a lot of snacks out there too. I tell you what, Dakota bought some Reese's out there, man, which is the goat of all candy. That's facts. That's facts. Somebody said no shot. <laughs> it is. But we're really praying that there will be some godly community had out in the West Lobby. Here's my challenge to you. When we go out there to the cornhole tournament, one challenge is to win. <laughs> love for you to win. But number two, I would love for you to talk to somebody you don't know. And I mean that. That's the whole reason I, I asked Jordan Bowman to do it. I would love for you to talk to somebody in the West Lobby that you don't know very well. Get outside your bubble. Get outside your normal circle. Talk to somebody that looks different than you, that talks different than you, that comes from a different background than you. I'm telling you, you won't regret it. So tonight, let me recap our series and where we are. This is the last night of our We Need to Talk sermon series. And what we've done over the last five weeks, tonight being week number six, is we've walked through a, a few different topics, some lighter than others, some heavier than others. What we've done is we've answered some hard questions. We start out, started off with dating in and of itself. And what does that look like biblically when the Bible doesn't talk about dating? Well, it talks about evaluation and decision-making and, and maturity. So we really began with evaluating you, your and my maturity. Are we people who are really maturing in Christ or are we lacking in our maturity? Do we even need to begin a, a dating relationship with somebody else? Or are we missing something in our relationship with Christ? Have we not gotten that figured out? Because remember, we all agreed that until you understand the importance of a relationship with God, you'll never be ready for a relationship with a person. Never. And so we laid that foundation. Then for the next two weeks, and I would encourage you to, to go back and listen to it if you haven't. We talked about the guy. We talked about the girl. We talked about sexuality. We did a Q&A night last week where we answered some hard, hard questions that you guys sent in. Well, tonight we end our series. I'm very excited for that. If you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and open up with me. To two places, I want you to get hyped for both of them, for Ephesians 5 and Hebrews 13. Yeah, that's right, that's right. I love that that's the loudest we've been tonight for God's word. Not Chick-fil-A, not the Cornhole Tournament, but God's word. I want to say, if you can learn to get excited about God's word, you're off to a great start. Ephesians chapter 5 and Hebrews chapter 13. Now let me give you the title of my sermon. This is the last one of this series, and I love ending it this way. Here's the title. Let's talk about happily ever after. I thought it was creative. <laughs> Let's talk about happily ever after. Let's end our series by talking about marriage. I grew up in the public school system. I went to Bartlett High School, graduated from there. There's some people tonight who went to Bartlett. You're part of my family. Panthers forever. Amen. <laughs> Amen. And uh, that's right. I see you, PJ. I grew up in the public school system. I'll be honest with you. My view of sex and marriage was distorted at a very young age because of my surroundings. 
I was surrounded by people who had a very distorted view of sex and marriage. And I want to tell you, how many of you know that who you're surrounded by is going to have a big impact on how you view matters of this world? It has a big impact, T.O. Who you're surrounded by matters. And because I went through the public school system, and it's not just public schools, but because I was surrounded by so many people who had a distorted view of sex and marriage, it was very easy for me to adopt a distorted and corrupted view of sex and marriage. One of the first times, and I say this, it'll be a little funny, but one of the first times I was ever actually challenged on my view of love and marriage was when I heard a Maroon 5 song. I'm not talking about payphone. I'm not talking about payphone. But hear me out for a minute. There's this old Maroon 5 song, and I don't even know if some of you were born yet. There's this old Maroon 5 song, and one of the lyrics, it's not a great, good song by any means, but one of the lyrics stuck with me as a kid. I could not have been more than 12, 13 years old. I was probably in middle school. But the song lyric in this is, it is one of the clearest lyrics that has ever stuck with me. And for years through high school, I thought back to that lyric whenever my mind went to marriage. I'm telling you, I still remember it to this day. Some of you recognize it. Here's the song. It's not crazy, but here's the song lyric. It's not always rainbows and butterflies. It's compromise that moves us along. You ever heard that? It's not always rainbows and butterflies. It's compromise that moves us along. That's Maroon 5. I'm just kidding. It's not always rainbows and butterflies. It's compromise that moves us along. Now, I would not recommend going to Maroon 5 for biblical theology <laughs> by any means. <laughs> if you walk out here tonight and tell somebody, yeah, my pastor told me that Maroon 5 is great on biblical theology. Well, they're going to tell you not to come back. But that line has always stuck with me because for years I wondered what does it actually look like to compromise, especially in marriage, especially in relationships. That stuck with me. And after being married for only three years, I'll be honest with you guys, I don't know a lot. <laughs> I'm learning and growing every single day in marriage. I am constantly being pruned of my selfishness. I'm being peeled back like an onion of my pride every single day. I don't have much figured out, but I do know this. After only being married three years, I can tell you this. Selfishness will ruin any marriage. Selfishness will ruin any marriage. No matter how smart you both are, no matter how theologically sound you both are, no matter how great of friends you are, you can be the best friends in the world. I want to tell you. Wherever selfishness and pride are, division and disunity are there too. Wherever selfishness and pride are, division and disunity are there too. And that's something I've had to learn the hard way. Right now, I cannot drive my car. I'll be honest with you, I'm in a very hard situation right now. I've been borrowing rides from people everywhere. Fernando has driven me pretty much all across the city of Memphis. Dakota has given me a ride to work every single day faithfully. He told me this morning, he's like, Coach, I'm basically waiting for you to tell me to stop picking you up. Because it's been hard. I haven't had my car right now. And what's crazy is every single thing about my car is fine except for one thing. One thing. I was in the Wendy's drive-thru. <laughs> picking up my Dave's double. <laughs> with fries. And I'm driving through the drive-thru and I hear a pop. And I'm like, oh, it sounded just like that. <laughs> Not like that though. <laughs> and I'm driving through the uh, drive-thru and I pull and I park the car and I get out and I look at the tire. And there's this massive nail sticking out of my tire. Don't you hate that feeling? It happens on the worst days, too. It happens when it's raining outside and it's cold and you don't have a spare tire. And so i got to get my car over to my dad's to fix it. But right now I can't drive my car. Literally, it's incredible. My whole car is disabled and incapacitated right now because of a tiny, tiny nail. I wrote this down in my notes because it applies. A nail seems small, but it can halt an entire car from going where it's supposed to go. And I want to tell you, in the same way, when it comes to pride, pride and selfishness, like nails, can seem small, but they can halt an entire marriage from going where it's supposed to go. I want to say this. I got out of my car, and I drove back and forth a little bit to find what was in my tire. A nail, guys ask me all the time, hey, what best advice do you have on marriage? I tell them, die to your selfishness. A nail can be hard to spot if you aren't looking for it, and it slowly drains air out of your tire. And I want to tell you, pride can be hard to spot when you're not looking for it, and it, what it does is it slowly drains the life out of any marriage slowly drains the life out of any marriage, pride and selfishness. Where those are, disunity exists. I want to tell you, when I was lost, I wondered what compromise looked like in marriage. And when I got saved, I found God's word. I realized very quickly what it meant. It meant this, Galatians 2, verse 20, this, screen, this verse will be on the screen. It says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I gave my life to the Lord. I realized John 15, verse 13, it says this. It'll be on the screen as well. No one has greater love than this than to lay down his life for his friends. Along the way, I have loved biblically that marriage is about loving your spouse with the same love Jesus Christ has loved you with. That's a big deal. Now, remember, 96% of young people want to be married. 
96%. Which means if we took a poll, probably 96% in this room want to be married. I believe this is one of the most important sermons I'm going to give you because a lot of us grew up with parents who did not model a godly marriage. I'm not talking about your parents, but I know marriage in our country is not valued the way God values it. And I believe this sermon is pivotal. So if you will, look with me at Ephesians chapter 5. As we look at two things tonight, as we pick apart Paul's teaching on Ephesians. And I know marriage is something that's hard to talk about and it's tense and, and you start getting into selfishness. But I really want to unpackage what God has said about marriage. Now we come to chapter 5. And in fact, what I love is we've looked at this text in our sermon series. You'll be familiar with it. This is something that we've spoken about a couple of times now. But Paul begins the chapter of, of uh, Ephesians chapter 5 telling them to imitate God. And then he ends it with talking about marriage. And I love what he says here. And it's so applicable to tonight. And I'm going to also turn you to Hebrews 13 in a moment. But if you will, look with me at Ephesians chapter 5 verse 31. Paul says this. He says, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. Now, this mystery, underline mystery, if you have that in your Bible, and this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Uh, this is a verse that I cross-referenced in one of my Sunday morning sermons at Bellevue. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. And then verse 33, to sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. The author of Hebrews 13, chapter 13, if you have that mark, you can flip over to Hebrews 13. Look what it says in this verse as well. It says in verse 4 of chapter 13, <clears throat> it says marriage is to be honored by all. And the marriage bed kept undefiled because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And Lord, right now we pray against the enemy's attacks. Father, we pray against the enemy's attacks of discouragement and distraction tonight. Father, I know that the enemy would love to discourage and distract us from your word. I pray against that now. I pray, Lord God, that you would bind the enemy from this place in the name of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, the word of God, and the, and the spirit of God tonight, Lord. I pray he would have no place here. I pray, Lord, that you would move in our hearts and our minds. I pray that you would reveal to us the biblical truth of marriage and that we would walk away having a renewed view of how valuable it is and how we should treat it with value. Father, I pray for anyone in here tonight who has a heavy heart, anyone in here tonight who doesn't know Jesus, who doesn't know you, Lord. I know that there are people in this room who came here tonight. You brought them here tonight because you are desiring for them to give their lives to you. Father, me and every fellow believer in here come to you and we ask that, that they would give their lives to you tonight. Father, thank you for this time that we have. I pray you would move powerfully. And if that's your prayer tonight, would you say amen? Amen. God bless you. Number one, the beauty and the design of marriage. Let's start here. Two points. We're going to pick them apart. We're going to go as deep as we can tonight in about 40 minutes. Number one, the beauty and the design of marriage. Mac, let's pick that apart first. I've put a lot on the screen, but I'm going to try to go slow because I do want you to take as many notes as you can tonight. I, I really do believe this is a pivotal sermon for our generation. The beauty and the design of marriage. Now, God values marriage. In fact, God values marriage a lot more than what we realize. He values it so much that he has filled the Bible with marriages and weddings everywhere. And if you're not observant, you might miss it, Chris. You might miss how many weddings and how many marriages that exist in Scripture. But we often don't notice them because we don't really value it the same way God does. And I'm going to challenge you tonight on your viewpoint of it. God's first design for marriage is found in Genesis chapter 2. It's also The very first one is Genesis chapter 2. Now, God creates everything and declares... Seven times, hear me out for a minute. He creates everything and declares seven times that it is good. You remember that? The generation, Genesis account, he creates everything seven times. It is good, it is good. Then in verse 18 of chapter 2, Heather, verse 18 of chapter 2, he says this. We have our first not good. Jill, do you remember what our first not good was in chapter 2? Mm, I'm going to show you. Don't worry, I'm going to get an answer. I'm not going to leave you hanging. This ain't no cliffhangers tonight. It says this. God said it is not good that the man should be alone. The first not good. Isn't that fascinating, Trey? The first not good. Now, I love one of the quotes that I read on this man. I love this. I geek out. It don't take much to make me laugh. I'll be having a good time when I'm studying for these sermons. One of the quotes said, the animals were already there with Adam. But let's be honest. 
There's a big difference between watching the sunset with a beautiful woman and watching it with a giraffe. <laughs> Bro, I love that. Listen, I was in my office cracking up, <laughs> dying at that, because I was thinking about the difference between me watching the sunset with my wife and some random giraffe. I don't know. I was getting a kick out of that. He had the animals, but it ain't the same. God said it's not good for man to be alone. So I love what happens next. God then fashions from the side of Adam what Genesis calls a helper suitable for him, one that was a good fit. In fact, I'll even tell you this, what First Peter calls a fellow heir of the grace of life. Man and woman were made different from each other, yet made to fit together. Different from each other, yet made to fit together. God designed husbands and wives to complement each other and to bring each other joy, Sean. It's a beautiful thing what God did in marriage. Then in Genesis chapter 2, if you think about the scene coming to a close. Think about an episode coming to a close. Think about a movie coming to a close where you have like 22 Marvel movies. Think about the chapter of Genesis chapter 2 coming to a close. It comes to a close with this. The man and the woman are completely vulnerable with each other and completely at peace. Sin has not entered the world and man and woman are completely vulnerable. There's nothing hidden. There's no shame. There's no guilt. They are with each other the way God designed it and they're completely at peace with each other. And what, is ha- what, is ha- what happens, Lindsay, in Genesis chapter 3? Sin enters the world. I want to tell you something. The greatest peace that you think that you can have one day in your marriage, sin will ruin peace. Sin corrupts peace. It corrupts God's design. So what you have at the end of Genesis 2 is you have God's design for it, and then when you go into Genesis 3, sin comes in, and it ruins and distorts God's design for it because they choose to disobey God. Now, what I love about marriage is it's a gift from God, and it's not found just in Genesis, but the design of marriage is all in the Bible. In fact, there is a marriage shown between God and his people. I've been reading through the Old Testament with my D group, and what I love is we've been seeing how God is in a marriage with his people, and I'm going to prove it to you tonight. Throughout Scripture, God is so often portrayed as the bridegroom, as the husband, and his people are portrayed as, as the bride. It's an incredible marriage. In fact, don't believe me. I take, take God's word for it. Isaiah 54, 54 verse 5. <laughs> Man, that barley came out quick. <laughs> I'm sorry. My wife's so embarrassed right now. 54. <laughs> I was like, who are we learning from tonight? <laughs> Isaiah 54. All right, let me move on. Isaiah 54, verse 5. The Lord says. <laughs> oh. Moving on. Isaiah 54, verse 5. Indeed, your husband is your maker. His name is the Lord of armies. <laughs> and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. Look at this. He is called the God of the whole earth. Not only that, but Isaiah 62, verse 5 says this. For as a young man marries a young woman, so your sons will marry you. And as a groom rejoices over his bride, so your God will rejoice over you. Not only that, but Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 14 says this, return, faithless people. This is the NIV version of this verse. Normally, I'm using the CSB or NASB or ESV. says this, return, faithless people, declares the Lord, for I am your husband. I will choose you, one from a town and two from a clan, and bring you to Zion. Not only that, let me slow down for a minute. That was Jeremiah 3, verse 14, if you want to get that reference. God bless you. And I'll give you this one as well. Jeremiah, another verse, 31, 31 and 32 says this. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not look like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. It's all over scripture. In fact, the entire book of Hosea explains how Israel cheated on God with other false idols and how God, as a loving partner, constantly pursues his bride. Listen, I want you to understand, adultery is not just when a married man or a married woman cheats on their spouse in this earth. Adultery is idolatry. Adultery is idolatry. At any point in your life, when you place something above God, you are essentially committing adultery. Because remember, it's a relationship. It's not a religion. God is a jealous God, and I'm thankful that Hannah doesn't want to share me with any Sally Luhu who comes up and down the street. I'm thankful that I'm hers and she's mine. And you know what? God's the same way. When you belong to the Lord, God doesn't, is not going to share you with that tree. God's not going to share you with this speaker. God's not going to share you with people pleasing. Let me be real honest with you. God's not going to share you with the culture. 
Some of us idolize the culture. But let me tell you, God's not going to share you with the culture. He's not going to share you with being the most popular person in the world. Whatever your idol is, whatever you idolize, that big house, that fancy car, whatever it is, nothing wrong with these things. Popularity, no matter what it is. But whatever you are placing above God, if you're placing it above God, that is spiritual adultery. And that's why our hearts should break because God constantly, Ellie, pursues us even when we don't pursue him. And what's amazing is we constantly choose the world, and what that is is that's us cheating on the Lord with false idols. Idolatry is adultery. It's a relationship. We cheat on the Lord. And it's a shame, too, because God constantly pursues us. And I want to get some of the bad out of the way here for a minute. But let me tell you, God constantly pursues after us. Yet we are a humanity. If I can be very real with you for a moment. We are a people who constantly crave companionship. Our generation hates being alone. That's why we're connected 24-7 via TikTok, Instagram, Snapchat, text messages, FaceTime, phone calls. Is Skype still around? <laughs> Rest in peace. Zoom. We can't disconnect. We can't get away from our phone for 10 minutes. Statistically, Gen Z and millennials, if their phone's away from them for three minutes, they begin to have anxiety like a missing child. Do <laughs> you imagine a mom in Target when she loses her child? Oh, Johnny, where are you at? Panic. We have the same internal reaction when our phone's away from us. Do you think it's an idol? I'm asking you, man. You do the answering tonight. I'm just asking the questions. We crave companionship so bad, we'll do anything to get it. We will people please. We will bow down to the world. We'll change who God has made us to be to get validation and approval from other people. Let's just be real tonight, man. Let's be honest. Let's be raw. Let's be vulnerable. Let's be real. We will change how God has made us to get validation and approval from other people because we want companionship. We want that intimacy. Isn't it sad? And I wrote this down on my notes. Isn't it sad that for a people group who craves companionship so much, we have chosen to reject it from God for thousands of years. Thousands and thousands of years. So many people have chosen to turn away from the Lord. He's right there with you. He loves you. He cares about you. And this is why divorce is such a big issue in our world. Because when you're, when you're chasing after the high of people pleasing and a validation, when you're chasing after that, when it doesn't give you the satisfaction or the high that you need, you go to something else. That's why a lot of marriages, whenever it gets hard, oh, I'm just going to jump to something else that makes me happy. Some of you say, Daniel, it ain't that bad. That would never be me. I pray it isn't, but let me give you some statistics on divorce. Let's get the bad out of the way for a moment. Let's just be real. Let's call it what it is. Some of us in here come from divorced homes. Some of us come from parents who might as well have been divorced because the, the marriage is broken. So let's get it out on the table. Did you know that every 13 seconds... There's a divorce in America. Thirteen seconds. That's not even a full shot clock in the NBA. You can go through almost two. Sh you're gonna go through almost a full shot clock in the NBA. You watch an NBA game. Go through that full shot clock. Almost two divorces in the time it takes an NBA team to have a possession. That's the divorce rate in America, guys. It's crazy. It's crazy. I'll tell you this. Almost fifty percent of all marriages end in divorce. And that number is very similar to Christian marriages. Not, I said Christian marriages, not necessarily marriages where they're living on mission, where they're involved in. I'll tell you the, man, I'm getting off here. I'll tell you the marriages statistically in my study that flourish. You want to know where the divorce rate decreases? It decreases right here. When they're members of the church, when they serve in a life group, when they serve their community, when there's Bible reading and there's prayer, when there's actual, real living out their faith and not just a Christian title, the divorce rate plummets. It plummets. But what we have is the divorce rate is just as high amongst Christians because there's so many Christian couples, and your parents are some of them, not all of them, but some of them. There's a lot of Christian married couples that aren't living out their faith, and when you're not living out your faith, you're probably, likely, at least 50% could end in divorce too. So can I tell you something? Don't pursue a Christian marriage. Pursue a marriage that is pursuing Christ. Just because it has the Christian title does not mean it's going to flourish. The Christian title has not saved anybody. What saved all of us is the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross when every single one of us could not deserve it, could not earn it. He died for us, rose from the grave for us so that we might have the newness of life. And when we pursue after him, that's when we find restoration. That's the kind of marriage you want. 
a marriage that is desperate for Jesus Christ, that is involved in the local body of Christ and serves at the church, the divorce rate goes down. But it's at 50%. Now, this one's crazy. Did you know that the average years until divorce, the average years until divorce is seven years? Seven years. Can you make it to high school? Seven years. The average age of divorce, 30. So you do the math. I can't stay on this for long, but what that means is a lot of people, and I'm not trying to scare you, but I do want to raise your awareness. A lot of people get married at 23. A lot of people statistically get married at 23. Whether it's the Lord's timing or not, I, I'm not the one to discern that, but a lot of people get married at 23. Like I was 24, 25. And what happens is if they're not grounded in God's word, seven years go by, they hit 30, they get out of the honeymoon phase, they start arguing, they have different viewpoints on life, they didn't talk things out in marriage counseling, they, they, they had habitual sin in their lives that they didn't deal with when they were single and then they go into marriage and it's still there and they, they struggle with each other and they don't really have this relationship with each other where they talk to each other. So what they do is, which is what a lot of us do, they just kind of jump out of that marriage and try to find something better. That's just the statistics of what we have in our country. I want to tell you, with Jesus Christ, there is such a better way. God values marriage, and he values commitment. He values this, that even when you, even when you disobey, are there consequences? Absolutely. There are consequences for our sin. But I'll tell you this, God never forsakes you. He never gives up on you. He never says, oh, you know what, Daniel, you have eaten terrible this month, you have been rude, all these things, you know what, I'm throwing you to the side, I'm done with you. He never does that with us. He never gives up on us. God values commitment, and that's how he wants us to be in marriage, to value commitment, where we don't just jump from one thing to another when it gets hard, but, but just as James says, to count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds, in marriage, you're going to have trials, and if your marriage is rooted in God's word, I promise you this, you will overcome those trials. You will overcome those trials. If your marriage is not rooted in God's word, those trials will overcome you. They'll overcome you. Have a marriage that's rooted in God's word because our generation is living with an unbiblical view of marriage. Basically, it's, hey, as soon as I get unhappy, I'm jumping out. I'm jumping ship. Now, when you look at the Bible, marriage and commitment is all over Scripture. One of my favorite moments, Chiana, on marriage is Exodus 24. In fact, I've talked about this at some point with some of you, but I want you to see this a little bit. A covenant in the Old Testament was a big deal. When you hear covenant, that was a big deal in the Old Testament. It was a commitment that was not meant to be broken over anything. So covenant is commitment. It is a deal. It is a, a you think about Genesis 15 when God makes the blood covenant with Abraham. If a blood covenant was broken in the Old Testament, that meant death for the one who broke it. A covenant was a big deal. Nowadays, we don't treat promises or commitments that way. We don't treat our words that way. None of us in here have actually read the Apple terms and conditions. It's like 99 pages, and we hit it, agree, we put our name on it, but we never actually read it. It's because, hey, it's just something, I just got to click it to get to the next thing. But a covenant in the Old Testament was a big deal. Now, I want to give you this. When God gave his word, God had only one option, and that was to keep his word. A lot of us in here, including myself, struggle to keep our word. We throw our words around casually. God has always kept his word. And if you look closely at the covenant in Exodus 24, Trey, you'll see something incredible, Zach. I'm telling you, watch this. Exodus 24, verses 1 to 3. He said to Moses, and 70 of Israel's elders bow in worship at a distance. Go up to the Lord. I'm sorry, I skipped. Go up to the Lord and bow in worship at a distance. Verse 2. Moses alone is to approach the Lord. Now watch closely here. Moses alone is to approach the Lord, but the others are not to approach, and the people are not to go up with him. Moses then, verse 3, came and told the people all the commands of the Lord and all the ordinances. Then all the people responded with a single voice. We will do everything that the Lord has commanded. This is a beautiful moment. And I want to put it on the screen. You're welcome to take a picture of this or write this down. I want to highlight what this moment is. Exodus 24, this is the covenant of God and his people. The very first thing here, write this down if you're willing in your notes. The very first thing you see in this moment is that there are three days of sanctification where they washed their clothes, they wore all white. There's something happening here in this, in this chapter. This is all the way back in Exodus. It's amazing how you can learn about God's design for marriage in 2021 by looking all the way back to Exodus 24. 
Now, what you have here, you have three days of sanctification. They washed their clothes. They wore all white. And then it says the next thing is that they approached the mountain. They approached the mountain. There's a gathering place. Not only that, Moses represents the mediator here. So you have a preparation process, you have a gathering, you have Moses as the mediator here. Moses is getting ready to mediate something. He's getting ready to bring something together. And then they have a wedding agreement, the Ten Commandments. So Moses, what's amazing is you watch weddings today. I've been to a lot of weddings lately. Moses is operating similar to how a, a pastor is. In the wedding agreement here, Moses has the Ten Commandments. And he, what Moses is doing is this amazing picture. He's bringing God together with God's people. And the last thing I wrote on here is it's amazing. There's a response from the people. In Exodus 24, verse 3, we will do. What's that sound like, PJ? Sounds just like when you go to a wedding, and what do you say? I do. There's a preparation process, there's a gathering, there's a mediator, there's an agreement, there's a commitment, there's an expectation on the table, and then there is a response of the people. I love this. You can go all the way back to Exodus 24 to see that marriage in God's eyes is this sacred. It is so sacred that marriage is how God is coming together with his people. See, marriage is a whole lot bigger than just having the pictures on your wall. Marriage is a whole lot bigger than just being able to put a ring on your hand. Marriage is a whole lot bigger than just being able to get a house and have a dog and a couple kids. <laughs> Marriage in God's eyes is how God is coming together with his people. I love it. One of the things I wrote down is this, and I'd love for you to write this down. This won't be on the screen. Marriage is how God revealed his love and compassion to Israel, his people in the Old Testament. And some of you might be with me on this. Some of you might track with this. Some of you might not. That's fine. But ultimately, God and his people were coming together through a marriage, through a covenant. God's design for marriage is beautiful because when you trace it to the New Testament, marriage is how God is going to bring Jesus Christ and his church together. Marriage is how God is going to bring Jesus Christ and his church together. So when you look at Jesus Christ, who's the husband to the church, a.k.a. you and me, and you look at Jesus and how he's treated us, one word comes to mind, and that's sacrifice. Which leads me to number two, the love and the mission of marriage. The love and the mission of marriage. Now, we've talked about the design. We've talked about the beauty of it, that you can trace it all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. You can trace it all the way back to Exodus chapter 14. It's a beautiful design by the Lord, and it has an amazing purpose. But I want to talk about the love and the mission of marriage because Paul says it's a mystery, and we're going to come back to that in a moment. But I want to read a passage that I have heard so many times at so many weddings. Some of you may be familiar with that. It's the chapter of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It says this. I'm going to read eight verses of it, a little bit longer than what they read at weddings. But I want you to think about this for a minute. Paul says, if I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Can I stop right there? Do you know why Paul highlights all these hypothetical scenarios? You know why Paul highlights all these? Because these are common ways we try to substitute actually loving people. We just do these things instead. See, you hear a lot about a lot of dads that travel for business and are never home with their kids. What they do is they try to buy them really nice stuff to what? I'm not dogging on any dads. I'm just saying a lot of times they try to buy stuff for their kids, hoping that buying them gifts will make up for the time that they weren't there, the love that they couldn't show. Paul's highlighting these hypothetical scenarios because these actually happen. What we try to do is he talked about intelligence. We try to show people just how smart we are. Let's be honest, man. We try to really impress people with just how intelligent, how theologically sound we are. We use our Instagram to really prove, man, we know it all. But if we got all that knowledge and we got all that intelligence but we don't have love, what we are is a clanging symbol. Boom, 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 boom. Ain't no love getting through. Paul said, hey, you can give away all your possessions. You can give somebody your house. But if you're not showing them the love of Christ, what good is it? What good is it? And he goes on to say this. I love it. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It's not boastful. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not irritable. 
does not keep a record of wrongs. Aren't you grateful that when you repent of your sins, Jesus Christ has blotted out your transgressions? Aren't you thankful for that tonight? Keeps no record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And I love this. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. In fact, I'll even point you to the beginning of Ephesians 5, verse 1 and 2. It says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children, and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. You know why Paul says walk in love? Because real love is an action. Real love walks. Real love doesn't sit. Real love walks. Now, I want you to understand, one day when you get married, you will learn the meaning of sacrifice. That love is sacrifice. And I'm not just talking about you want Mexican food and she wants salad, so you compromise. That might be a great way to show it. But real love is sacrifice. Marriage is about literally dying to yourself completely because Christ-like love is about sacrifice. Worldly love is about self-satisfaction. Christ-like love is about sacrifice. Worldly love is about self-satisfaction. If I could give you something practical right here and in the now, well, something I wish somebody would tell me when I was 22 years old, I told our entire church this, how you treat your relationship with Christ today is a good indicator of how you'll treat your relationship with your spouse tomorrow. I want to let you know real clearly, if you want to know how you're prepared for marriage, this is one of the best indicators I could give you. How you treat your relationship with Christ today is a good indicator of how you'll treat your relationship with your spouse tomorrow. It is. If I can be honest with you guys, when I was 22 years old and in your place and wanted to date, when I looked at myself, I realized that my motive was very selfish. You don't hear a lot of people say that, but I'll just be real and honest with you guys. My motive to date and marry was very selfish. I thought about all the things that marriage could bring me, not the glory that marriage could bring God. And that's just me being honest with you guys, man. I was very selfish. I realized that I was selfish. And when I looked at my relationship with Christ back then, my relationship with Christ was pretty selfish too. And listen, if you're sitting out there and you're saying, man, I hope so-and-so heard that, mm-mm, I'm talking to you. <laughs> I want to ask you something. When you, and I really want you to think about this for a moment. When you look at your relationship with God, is it all about you or is it all about him? Do you have a relationship with God? I mean, seriously, let me stop for a moment. Do you know God? So I'll tell you, it's the greatest relationship you'll ever have. It's the realest relationship you ever have. So there's some of us in the room who, and if we're being honest, you are where I was at 21 years old. When I was 21 years old, if I died, I didn't know if I was going to heaven or hell. I'll be honest, I didn't have a clue. I didn't know what it meant to know God. I knew about God. But I didn't know what it meant to have a personal relationship with Jesus. I heard people say that all the time. Man, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? I was like, what are you talking about? A personal relationship with Jesus is the most important marriage, covenant, commitment you'll ever have. And I want to tell you, if you're here tonight and you believe that God may be impressing it on your heart to give your life tonight to him, that will be the greatest decision you will ever make. Ever make. For those in the room who are believers, has God been good to you? I tell you what, there's trials and there's storms and there's battles. Paul was beaten. Paul was shipwrecked. Paul was stoned. But God was good in every single one of those battles. Christians, can I ask you a question? Has God been good to you? If you're here tonight and you're not sure if you have a personal relationship with Jesus, we would love to talk to you. Because that's the most important thing. I believe that's why some of you came here tonight, because God is impressing on your heart to start a relationship with him. Not another person, but to start a relationship with him. For those of us who are believers, when you look at your relationship with God, is it all about you or is it all about God? I'll give you another question. Does God rule your schedule or does your schedule rule over your relationship with God? I'll give you a great measuring stick. Because a lot of times my schedule dictates my relationship with God instead of my relationship with God dictating my schedule. Who has the final say in what you do, where you go? Is it the Lord or is it you? Because at the end of the day, whatever you're giving to God is what you'll end up giving to people. Whatever you're giving to God is what you'll end up giving to people. When I am self-centered in my marriage with Hannah, I can always trace it back to me being self-centered in my relationship with Christ. 
It's incredible. Every single time, I'll tell you this, I went on with this. I went a little bit further. When I'm impatient with Hannah, it's probably coming from an impatience with God. When you find yourself being impatient with people, there's probably a deeper issue there. It's not just that you're impatient with people. It's that you're impatient with the Lord. Because I'll ask you this. If you can't be patient on God, the Lord of the heavens and the earth, who's never late and never in a rush, how in the world are you going to be patient with people who are probably always late and always in a rush? I'm serious. For me, I'm always I was always late to classes, always. And for some of you, man, you are impatient with people, but ultimately it goes back to you have a hard time being patient with God. And I, one of the greatest ways I love to apply this is prayer because a lot of us, if we're honest, we struggle with prayer, but we would never admit it. We don't really know how to pray. We're too ashamed to ask somebody how to really teach us how to pray. But if prayer now, if you look at your life as a college student, if prayer now is just about you getting your way with God, marriage one day will probably be about you getting your way with your spouse. And that's just the realest thing I can tell you tonight, Grace. And I'm going to be honest with you. There's no other way I can apply it. Prayer illustrates it better than anything. Because ultimately, watch this. Prayer is not about you getting your way with God. Prayer, about, prayer is about God getting his way with you. And marriage is ultimately not about you. It's about the Lord. So in your relationship, John, that I just want you to think for a moment. Is it about you or is it about God? Because ultimately, his glory is the greatest thing that can come out of your relationship with God. I'll tell you this. If you can learn, I think this one will be on the screen. If you learn to pray with God's glory in mind, I promise you this. You will learn to love the people in your life with God's glory in mind. I promise you, Sydney. If you learn how to pray with not just what can I get from God, how can God get me out of this mess, how can God get me out of this pit, if you learn to really pray and the purpose of your prayers is the glory of God, when you interact with people in your life, you'll interact with them in a way where the end goal is not getting something from them, but the end goal is that God would be glorified. It's possible. It's possible. I'd love for you to write this down. The ultimate goal of marriage is to bring ultimate glory to God. There's a quote from Ben Stewart that I love on marriage because I think it, paints it beautifully. It says this marriage is not just designed by God. It is meant to display something about God. Marriage is not just designed by God. It's meant to display something about God. In Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul says mystery, he's not saying that marriage is hard to understand. He's saying that godly marriage between a man and a woman should reveal the mystery, and that mystery is profound, that it should reveal the mystery of Christ's relationship with us. Watch this, that one day, for those of you who want to be married, one day that your marriage should be so loving, so sacrificial, so dying to self that it literally shares the gospel with other people. That's the mystery. You think about that. That the mystery of God loving us is revealed through your marriage one day. But some of us think about our parents' marriage. Some of us think about the marriages we've seen. And we can't imagine a marriage pointing to God because all we see in America are marriages pointing to sin and selfishness and arguing. And two people married who don't really love each other. That's what we see a lot of times in America. I'll just be honest with you. But Paul says, no, no, no. Marriage reveals the mystery of God's love for his people. Isn't that amazing how we go? I'll tell you this. It's important who you marry. This is why the devil hates godly marriages. There is nothing that shares the gospel clearer than a godly marriage. There's nothing that shares the gospel clearer than a godly marriage. A godly marriage is one of the greatest evangelistic tools we have. A godly marriage because it points people, Michaela, to Jesus Christ. It points them to the love that Jesus has for this world. See, I want you to walk out of here tonight having a renewed view of marriage because it matters. I would love for you to write this down. A godly marriage is a marriage that's on mission. i tell you this. One of your goals in your future marriage should be this. To lead as many people to Christ as you can. Is that a goal you have? To lead as many people to Christ as you can. Sadly, to be honest, many Christian marriages aren't really concerned with leading people to Christ at all. Do you know why? Fernando, I'm going I'm to tell you why. Why do we see so many Christian marriages that don't really care about seeing people come to know Jesus? It's this right here. It's not their goal in marriage because it wasn't their goal when they were single. Christian marriages 
often have no desire to see lost people come to Christ because it wasn't their goal when they were single. Why would they get married and live on mission? When they never learned how to live on mission as a college student. How in the world can you get married and go share the gospel when you never learned how to share the gospel as a single individual? So I'm going to ask you this. For all of you who are single, is your mission to lead people to Christ? Let me ask a harder question, Jazz. Do you care? And this is my last one of the series, so we're going to get a little honest for a minute. Do you care at all about you verbally, which your words and actions, telling people about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do you care at all about doing that? Or, is you, or are you perfectly content? And I'm talking to myself too. I'm in the same boat with you. Are you perfectly content staying inside of your bubble, your Christian bubble? And not ever talking to people who look a little bit different, who don't know Jesus, who believe something different than you, do you care at all? Because if you don't care when you're single, when you're married, you will not care about lost people coming to know Jesus. And I want to tell you this, an amazing trait godly couples have is they share Jesus with people. They share Jesus. But a lot of godly couples end up with hospitality, which is an amazing thing. I'm going to make a big point to you. Hospitality is an amazing thing. It's amazing to be hospitable. Me, me and Hannah try all the time to open up our place, to open up your home. In fact, 1 Peter talks about it. 1 Peter 4, verse 8 and 9 says, Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Verse 9 says this, Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Hospitality is a great thing. A lot of Christian couples go into it saying, Man, we're going to be hospitable. We're going to open up our home. We're going to have people over. Here's a danger, though. I wish somebody would have told me this when I was single. Many couples end up being hospitable without ever being evangelistic. Many couples end up being hospitable without ever being evangelistic. Do you know what happens? This is what happens, Caleb. And I'm telling you, I hope this challenges you. To be hospitable without being evangelistic means you'll open up your home for Christians, but never for lost souls that you're ministering to. Man, you'll have a great home with a lot of believers coming over, but it will be just that. It'll be the believer's bubble. It'll be the believer's cafe where Chick-fil-A served and Hillsong's always playing and worship music's on and Do It Again's playing. Dun, dun, dun. God of Wonders, hopefully. If you love the Lord, you'll play God of Wonders. But God desires both of us. In fact, Jesus' heart is for lost souls. I'll tell you this, Luke 19, verse 10 says this, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. Mark 16, verse 15, it's very clear. Then he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Your marriage is a walking sermon. Your marriage should be a walking evangelistic sermon that shares the gospel with everybody you come in contact with. So let me tell you, please, don't settle for a marriage that just loves Christians well. I implore you, love Christians well, but pursue a marriage that's willing to love atheists well. Pursue a marriage that's willing to love Muslims well. Pursue a marriage that's willing to love people of different skin colors than you well. Pursue a marriage that's willing to love the poor well. Where scripture talks a lot about, by the way, loving the poor well. But sometimes we only open up our homes for those who can do something for us, for people who have some money. Pursue a marriage that loves people who can't do anything for you. Because Christ loved you when you couldn't do anything for him. Nothing for him, Ruthie. Ain't that crazy? And he loves you. The Lord loves you, and he'll never stop pursuing you. I love this quote on marriage. It'll be on the screen. Yes, we do have this. Marriage is not just for our joy. That's a great part of it. But it's also a metaphor, a parable, a symbol of something great and universal and eternal, the union of Christ with his bride. As we step into this marriage bond, we become a living picture of God's wonderful union with his people. I love this line right here. Our unity tells a bigger story. I love that, man. Our unity tells a bigger story. God is saying something to the world about his love for humanity in a way the husband and wife relate to each other. The love of a husband for his wife displays to the world the love that Christ has for his church. And the love of a wife for her husband communicates to the world how the people of God respond to Jesus Christ. Man, I love it. I do pray hard for all of you. Every day. And one of the things I pray for you is that after college, you will have a marriage 
if it's according to God's will, you will have a marriage that loves all people with the love of Christ. With real love, Aliana. Real love that's in action. I tell you, I've been married for three years. I don't know much of anything. I know my own mistakes, and I've made plenty of them. I've made plenty of mistakes along the way. College guys ask me all the time, because most of my time goes to talking to college guys. They ask me all the time. They say, Daniel, what advice would you give about going into marriage? You can ask Trey. I tell him the same thing. I told Tyler the same thing. Die to your flesh. Die to your selfishness now. For everybody in the room, die to yourself. Put your sinful pleasures away. Repent of those and give those to God. So that one day when you do go into marriage, your unity with your spouse will tell a greater story. One of the stories that impacted me most that I heard was of a newlywed couple. They were probably late 20s, maybe 28, 29, late, mar- late, late 20s, almost 30, and they had just gotten married. And this story, when I read this, I've never forgotten this. They had just gotten married, Michelle, maybe a year before that. Beautiful couple. Come on, beautiful. Their wedding photos were incredible. They were so happy to be married. They were believers. They knew the Lord. They loved the Lord. And an incredible marriage that had come together. And... The young woman, who had just gotten married, went to the doctor. At the doctor, she found out that she had a tumor in her cheek. You may have heard this story from somewhere. She had a tumor in her cheek. And because of the tumor, she had to have surgery, Peyton, to have it removed from her cheek. And they had just gotten married, and they're nervous about the procedure, and they're nervous about what this is going to mean for their marriage and they, they go into the surgery and the doctor removes the tumor but in order to do this there's a nerve that's cut in her cheek Say, story goes um, that there would be changes to her face because of this surgery she wakes up from the surgery some time passes by Kobe and they hand her a uh, little mirror the kind that you hold with a little handle and it's a little rectangular mirror. She's in the hospital bed, dimly lit room. And her husband stands beside the hospital bed. I want to ask you, sometimes it's easy to find hope in a place like this on a Monday night when everybody's happy. In a hospital room, it's hard to find hope sometimes, isn't it? Have you ever been there with someone you loved? Have you ever been there personally? I'll tell you what. Sometimes hope is hard to find in the world, especially these days when everyone's divided. Hope is a hard thing to have when when time gets real. When cancer hit, when tumors arrive, when money's gone, hope can be hard to find. But I want to tell you, there is no external circumstance that can take away the hope you have in Jesus Christ. None. She holds this mirror, dimly lit hospital room, hard place to find hope, but not impossible because Jesus is with her. And she looks in the mirror. And she notices on her face that her lip is drooping, that her lip is hanging down a little bit, and it doesn't look right. The doctor's in the room. Her eyes got real wide. Worry comes over her face. She asks the doctor, she says, will my face, will my mouth always be like this, drooping down? The doctor looks at her and responds in this moment, yes, I'm sorry. But because of the procedure and the nerve being cut, it's going to be like that for the rest of your life. The story goes, she nodded and sat in silence, just staring in the mirror, realizing, J. Barb, that for the rest of her life, her mouth would be slightly twisted at an awkward angle and that it would stand out to everybody she comes in contact with. And then something powerful happens in this moment. The young husband who's standing beside her hospital bed in this dark hospital room looks at her and says this. I like it. And just like some of you did, her eyes perked up. She looked up at him. On her face was hope. She looked up at him in this moment, and he looks at her, and he says, I think it's cute. I think it's adorable. And in this moment, in the story, it goes, her face went from worried to hopeful and joyful like that. And I love this moment because the newly wedded husband's words didn't end with just words. It became an action. It was followed by action. 
I wrote this down in my notes, words of love that are never followed up by actions of love are not real love. Words of love that are not followed up by actions of love are not real love. And then in this moment, this is the action that happens. He tells her, I like it, it's adorable, it's cute, and then he leans down to kiss his newly wedded wife of just a few months. To kiss her lips that are twisted. And in this moment, the doctor is so close to them that he got a front row view to the kiss. And this is what the doctor said. I wrote it down in my notes. The doctor had a front row view at this young couple in this dark hospital bed with this woman whose lips are twisted. He was so close, he said that he witnessed the husband actually twist his own lips to fit hers. That in this moment, as he got close, he twisted his own lips to fit hers. And the reason why was to show her that their kiss still worked. I love this story because real love may start with words, but it's always followed by actions. In fact, I'll give you another one. Real love comes down to your level no matter how twisted or messed up you are. I'll give you another one. Real love, Christ-like love, is when someone adjusts themselves to meet your needs. See, this young husband could have walked out of the hospital room fed up, saying, you're not beautiful no more. But instead, he adjusted himself to meet her needs. His words of action were met with. His words of love were met with actions of love. In the final sermon of this series, I want to end it by telling you this great truth. The love of Christ didn't end with words. It was always followed by actions. In fact, the love of Christ came down to your level even though you were twisted too. All of us are twisted. What that means is all of us are sinful. That when I was at that park, I was twisted. I was sinful. I was broken in my sin. And Christ came down to my level. He met me where I was. And I want to tell you, he met you where you were. He came down to your level. Even though this world is sinful, even though you are sinful, he came down to you. Real love adjusts themselves to meet your needs. Christ took on flesh because it wasn't what he needed. It was what you needed. Your needs were the price of sin being paid. And what Jesus did is he came down and paid the price for your sin. Real love always rises above. Always. The love that Christ has for you cannot be stopped. Trauma cannot stop it. Cancer cannot stop it. Division cannot stop it. Nothing in this world can stop the love of Jesus Christ. I want to invite the band to make their way back out here. And as they do, I have one final passage of scripture I want to give you tonight to end our series. And it's this right here. It's Romans chapter 5, verses 10 to 11. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? And not only that, But we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. I want to invite you to all stand up and you can put your stuff away. And what I want to do is I want to give you a moment of invitation tonight. I want to invite you to bow your heads in this moment. with our heads bowed, I want to just give you an invitation. Some of us in here have been so concerned with marriage or dating to a person that we really haven't stopped to consider where we are with the Lord. I want to tell you that young husband's small act of love tells a greater story. It tells the story of Jesus coming down for you. It is never too late for you to give your life to Jesus Christ as long as you have breath in your lungs. As long as you are breathing, you can give your life to Jesus Christ tonight. And I firmly believe that some of you tonight are here and what you need is a relationship with Jesus Christ. That there, as you look back on your life, there has never been a time where you truly, really repented of your sins and gave your life to Jesus. Where that moment of brokenness happened for you. That moment of needing Jesus, that moment where it got more, it got bigger than just playing church. It got bigger than just a religion. 
where it's an active, real relationship with God. So if you're in the room tonight, I want to give you an invitation. If you are here tonight, you say, Daniel, I don't really know. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to shoot it straight with you, Daniel. I don't really know if I have a relationship with Jesus. Or you know what? I don't have a relationship with Jesus. Daniel, I'm going to shoot it real straight with you. I don't know. I don't have one. I need one. Wherever you are tonight, if you have questions or if you want to talk to somebody about Jesus, I want to tell you, he lived on this earth. He lived the sinless life, the perfect sinless life. He died for your sins. He rose from the grave, and he desires to have a relationship with you tonight. And our great prayer is that we would be able to have a conversation with you. You're not committing to anything, but you're committing to to maybe talking to somebody. I'm not going to embarrass you. You don't have to come up here. Nothing like that. I'm telling you, this is so simple. It's so easy. Emotions are involved, but it's not an emotional decision. It's about you and the Lord. And so tonight, I do want to tell you that if you are here and you want to talk to somebody about Jesus, maybe you've got questions, you don't have a relationship with him, or you don't know if you do, if that's you tonight, this is all I'm asking you to do. It's super easy. If that's you and you're not sure about Jesus, don't wait. What I'm asking you to do is just to slip your hand up wherever you are in the room tonight and let me see you. If you're in the room tonight and you say, Daniel, I have questions about a relationship with Jesus, I need to talk to somebody about Jesus. Wherever you are, slip your hand up so I can see you across the room tonight. Hold your hand high for me. I see you. Thank you. I see you guys. Keep your hands up for me for just a moment. I see you. I appreciate you. I see you right there too. You keep your hand up for me. There's some in the room tonight that may be afraid to raise their hand. You're not committing to anything. We want to have a conversation with you. Don't let fear keep you from talking to somebody. You guys keep your hands up for me for just a moment. If there's anybody else in here tonight who maybe you're not sure if you know Jesus personally and you're willing to talk to us about it, our staff, just hold your hand up so I can see you wherever you are tonight. I'll give you one more moment. Is there anybody else tonight? You just slip your hand up so I can see you. I promise you it's a safe place. It's a safe place. Is there anybody else tonight? I see you. Thank you. Thank you. Keep your hand up for me for just a moment. There may be somebody else. I don't know. But there may be somebody else in here tonight that wants to talk to somebody. You're not coming up here, but you'll just head to the lobby. Is there any? I'll give you one more moment. Is there anybody else who wants to slip their hand up tonight? Just go ahead and slip your hand up wherever you are. Wherever you are tonight. Thank you for you guys that have your hand up. Can you look up at me for a moment? I see you. I see you. I see you right there. What we're going to do is real easy. If you want to go ahead and you can slip to Dakota right there. He has his hands up. You can slip right there to Dakota. He's right there. You can slip this way too. And what we're going to do is we're going to get somebody that can talk to you. He's on the chair right there. You can slip right out that way. He's going to connect with you. He's going to take care of you. Let's keep our heads bowed in this moment. You can have somebody go with you if you need to. I want to give you another invitation. Some of you witnessed the baptisms earlier. And man, that was special. But some of you are here tonight and you know that baptism is something God's calling you to. Maybe you've never been baptized or maybe you were baptized before you were saved. But if baptism, you're not committed to doing it here. We'd love to set that up at your church but, or here at Bellevue. But if you want to talk to somebody about baptism tonight, would you just slip your hand up so I can see you wherever you are in the room? If you're here and you want to talk about baptism or you have questions about baptism, just hold your hand up high for me so I can see you wherever you are. Is there anybody tonight who would like to talk about being baptized, possibly? Just slip your hand up wherever you are. We're going to get somebody that can talk to you tonight. Is there anybody at all? Thank you. I see you. Thank you, Silas. Is there anybody else for baptism? I'll give you one more moment. You just slip your hand up wherever you are, and we'll get somebody to talk to you if baptism is something you have questions about. Just hold your hand up so I can see you. Father, I love you. Lord, we love you. God, we thank you for these people who are talking in the lobby. We pray that they would give their lives to you. If they don't know you already, we pray that they would be baptized. God, I pray tonight that you would move powerfully in our hearts and our minds, that you would take this message and you would use it much much past tonight, that you would take this, Lord, and that you would use it to, to mold us and to shape us. And, Lord, we're just so grateful for the cross. We're so grateful for Jesus. We're, we're grateful to not have to do this life alone. Lord, we love you.
And God, we're so thankful for a bloody cross and an empty tomb. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Can we make some noise for those who are outside right now? Amen. I want to say one final thing to you, and then I'm going to turn it over to Jeff tonight. Uh, This sermon series has been a blessing to me, uh, to my wife. It's been a blessing to study this, to teach this to you, and, and to walk through this with you. I'm walking through all these things myself. This We Need to Talk series, I believe, is one of the most important ones we have done at The View. And I want you to know, I am praying every day that this series, whether it be singleness, whether it be dating, whether it be engagement, whether it be marriage, I'm praying that this series will last much longer than just this season of life. I'm praying that some of the things you've learned and some of the things I've learned and and what God has done in our lives will carry far past just this month, just these two months, but that these sermons and this series will carry with us into 2022, will carry with us into the next season of life, and that God will continue to do a work in you. And I want to promise you this, what Christ begins, Christ will finish. Christ has begun a work in you. And there are some people that got married a lot earlier than I did, but I'll tell you this, I'm very thankful that I waited for God's timing. And if you're in that boat where I was and you're waiting for God's timing, I'll tell you this, there's nothing greater than being on God's time and not yours. He will be faithful. He will be faithful to you. I love you. I thank you for being a part of this series. We have two more view services after this next week and then the week after, and we're going to be done for this semester. But I really want to thank you for your faithfulness to study, to learn, to take notes, and to really apply this message. I have had some of the greatest conversations with college students over the last six weeks in this series. Father, we love you. I pray that you would be with us as we worship in spirit and in truth. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.